Um, I'll start off with a prayer and then, um, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you once again for bringing everyone here this morning for, uh, for this Sunday school. Uh, we pray, Lord, that um, uh, you continue to open our hearts and our, our ears for, uh, for your word. Uh, we thank you that there's, um, uh, there's a, a thirst for your message in this world, Lord. We ask that uh, whatever would be said today would be edifying unto your word, uh, glorifying and, uh, and, and in whatever small way worthy of, uh, of, of the authority that you have over us. Please help us to recognise that as we go through your word. Um, let us each draw our own um, understanding uh, from it and, uh, and please help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, continuing on with the epistle. Now, I'm not going to go through everything over again because I think it's, it's, sort of, it's been done to death by me at this stage. Um, but one thing I wanted to, to, to keep everyone in mind uh, in relation to this specific um, uh, Sunday school uh, is, again, uh, from verse 3, and I've, I've sort of in red, uh, just to highlight it, the purpose of this epistle uh, is, is a charge for us to earnestly contend for the faith. And, and what we're looking at in the verses that I'm hoping to get through today, which will be 14 to 16, uh, another three verses, um, we will look at, at what, we're, what we should be doing in that regard. Um, again, it's helping us to understand who we're looking for and how to, how to uh, identify. And then uh, we'll be looking towards the latter half of the epistle um, in the Sundays to come. Um, hopefully over the next two Sundays to come, um, it will be uh, how we can go about uh, basically protecting ourselves and our hearts and, and our minds from these, uh, from these individuals, from these interlopers. So, uh, again, we start off with an introduction and then we've got multiple examples of, of those individuals um, and their behaviours. So, again, something to identify here is that this opposition, and to keep in mind, is not from the outside, it's an internal opposition. Um, with the examples we've got, we've got many uh, Old Testament and, and uh, extra-biblical um, elements that aren't canon but are, are still sit alongside it, like the Book of Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. And each one of these examples draws out different um, uh, parallels of behaviour. Uh, we have the biblical examples always followed by a very real-world exposure of these individuals. Uh, so we've got three groups of those, and within those, many, many triplets, and, and we don't need to go any more detail there. So what we're looking at here is effectively uh, the next section, which is verse 14 to 19, uh, which is, is looking at the prophecies of God and divine, and divine judgment. Uh, that's broken up into three sort of areas. We've got uh, an ancient warning, which is Enoch's prophecy, again, from the book of Enoch. Uh, we've got really just bringing everything that we've seen from verse... Uh, where are we? From verse 5 which is the very beginning of, of these descriptions, up until the end of 15, uh, really bringing that into focus with the current situation and, and, and sort of this concept of this needful exhortation, which is in Jude uh, verse, verse 3. Um, so the very reason why he wrote the letter, what he's just talking about in verse 3, this is uh, the, focusing that lens down into what's happening within this group um, at the moment. And when I say this group, I'm not talking about a historical group. This is an epistle that applies to us just as much today as it did back then. Um, so, so let's keep that forefront of mind. Although every example has been so old, the purpose of what Jude's talking about is to say that this has existed from the beginning of time and it will exist until the Day of Judgment. And the Day of Judgment is something that is heavily emphasised in, in what we're going to look at uh, today as well. Uh, Next week we'll probably get into the apostolic prophecies, which is 17 to 19, and I think it'll probably be one week to, uh, to do the last uh, five verses 
in relation to uh, a defence against these individuals, and then the, the ending doxology. So that's, that's sort of the, the structure that we'd be looking to cover, and we'll be doing uh, 14 to 16 today. Um, so we'll jump into it with, with Enoch's prophecy here. So this is an ancient warning uh, from First Enoch, and what I'll do, I'll read out uh, from the Book of Enoch, but again, for those that haven't been here before, just to re-emphasize, the Book of Enoch uh, is not and has never been considered part of the canon of Scripture. So it's an ancient book that sits alongside it that's just as educational, um, uh, you know, for, for its readers of the time. It's not considered canon uh, as far as the, the Bible's concerned, but it, it is still something that we can, we can look at today and, uh, and apply it through the lens of Scripture. Jude still felt it um, uh, important enough uh, to, to effectively quote from. So this is very close to a quote, and I'll get into some of the differences in a bit, but, uh, but I'll read it out here. So this is uh, first Enoch, uh, the, the, the first chapter, verse 9. He says, And behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which have they, they have ungodly committed, and of all hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So there's a lot to take in there. And the reason I wanted to read that first is to really contrast it with the, the verse that we're looking at uh, today in, in 14 and 15 from Enoch, which is, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So it's a very similar theme, but there are some differences, and it's in those differences that we can, we can draw some examples and a bit more of an understanding of, of what we're talking about here. So this prophecy is really talking about the day of judgment. And there are three verses that, uh, that exist in uh, Bibles. Uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, we have uh, an, an example here. Uh, Deuteronomy 33.2 says, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Sir unto them, he shined and rose up from Sarah unto them. Uh, sorry, he shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousand of saints. From from his right hand went a fiery law for them. So in this, we're looking at the Lord's appearance at Mount Sinai when he when he basically instructed uh, the the ten commandments to man through Moses. Um, so so this this concept of the ten thousand saints that we see in Enoch that's again repeated in Jude. So we've got Jude that's kind of quoting from Deuteronomy and a couple of other areas. So it exists in Enoch in one version, and then Jude's also quoting Enoch. So we've almost got like this nesting, uh, Russian nesting dolls of, of references here. So we've got three. So we've got our Deuteronomy. We've got Zechariah as well, uh, 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 5, uh, in which we have, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azael. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye flee from before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come with all the, and all the saints with thee. So again, referring to the day of judgment here. And then we have a reference in Isaiah, uh, chapter 66, verse 15 to 16, which is specifically making reference to the day of judgment. And we have here, uh, For behold, the Lord come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and to rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the, slain of the lawn, uh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. So there's a lot to take in here, and I know I've put it up the front, and that's hopefully because if I get rid of the, the really difficult bit up front, it's a little bit easier to move forward on here. So I've put them in the order that they appear 
um, uh, as far as uh, its, its chronological order, um, as far as we have the initial uh, deliverance of the law unto man, followed by the second coming of Christ at Armageddon, followed by then the day of judgment. So that's the chronological order that it sits within. Now Enoch makes specific reference saying that, behold, he come with 10,000 of his holy ones to destroy all the ungodly, to convict of all flesh, right? And then he talks about the works and the judgment against those. Now when Jude is quoting that, it's a little different. Um, And we'll get into that in a moment. One thing I wanted to point out though, Uh, The comment of seventh from man, we can see that that exists in Genesis 5. We've got from Adam to Seth to Enos to Canaan to Mahaliel to Jared to Enoch. Um, And when I was initially doing that, I was a bit, is that quite seven? Um, But I realized in my, in in sort of the study that when um, uh, there is a reference to a number in Jewish culture, they include the first and last. So it's, it's seven individuals that make up that list. Um, it's not seven from a particular point. It's inclusive of all those, um, not only those in between, but the ones that bookend it. Um, so seven individuals. So although counting it, you would say, I guess in our terms, it would be six from Adam. You would include Adam in that count there. So now the differences. When we look at the book of Enoch, although Jude is really quoting it quite specifically, if you, if you compare all of the words, it's incredibly close to what he does, but there's some subtle differences there. The first is that he replaces what is in the book of Enoch. He, again referring to God, but he replaces it specifically with the Lord, which is very much a New Testament terminology compared to when the book of Enoch would have been written in the Old Testament um, chronology. So it's, it's important to notice that. The other thing that Jude omits are all the references to destruction. So there's a component in the middle of Enoch, which is referring to destroying all the ungodly and convicting all flesh. So at the beginning, he talks about the day of judgment is coming, specifically makes reference to then the destruction of those individuals during that judgment and what the judgment related to, which is all of their works of ungodliness that they've ungodly committed and the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I find it interesting that Jude has left this out, and I haven't really found many commentaries that that make reference to it, but looking at the epistle on the whole uh, and the time that I've sort of spent with it, there's very much a reference to the day of judgment coming, it's, it's left ultimately um, open-ended within the book of Jude. There is a day of judgment coming. Um, there's very much a judgment coming for the ungodly and for the sinners. But Jude's epistle also makes it very clear that that judgment is entirely in God's hands and that it is very possible later on when we're looking at the, the very tail end of the epistle where we've got this, this heavy component at the beginning talking about the day of judgment and what's coming for these individuals and all of us um, on that day of judgment, there is, there is comfort and a blessing to be made through the Lord. Um, so I feel that the omission of this, and again, this is just my opinion, but, but it seems to resonate with the way that Jude has written this epistle. The destruction of these individuals, it is marked from the beginning, and he talks about that judgment and that destruction in that order. There is judgment to come and there is destruction of these individuals, and all the examples that have preceded this are very much around that destruction. Leaving it out here as we approach what we refer to as the, the, the prophetic areas of, of, the, of this epistle, Enoch's prophecy and the apostolic prophecies, that judgment that's coming, um, it, it's, it's not wanting, I guess, to attribute a, a, an absolute destruction to anyone because it, as it states at the end of this epistle, there is salvation that can be obtained for all that are willing to accept it. So 
like all of the examples in history where people had all of their, their, their time, they continually rejected and that destruction was there for them, Jude's still emphasising that this destruction exists for those individuals, but doesn't specifically call out that it's coming for them today, that it is coming and that there is a, a possibility of salvation for anyone willing to accept it. Um, so the other thing that I, I thought was worth talking about, uh, in First Enoch, um, because it, it's prophetic but it's referring to uh, the judgment that came through the Ten Commandments and uh, the event is basically, um, it's an accomplished event. Um, so it's already happened. So the way that Jude has put the tense into his specific um, uh, quotation of Enoch, he's made it a future tense. And it almost translates as, behold, the Lord is coming, as opposed to Enoch, which is saying, um, uh, behold, he cometh with 10,000. It, it is a historical tense in the original uh, translation. But here it translates as, the Lord is coming. It's a future tense. And he's really stressing that it is expected and it is certain that the Lord is returning. And I just think that's a, a, a wonderful um, uh, turn of phrase that is put in there to make it something that was the Lord it ha- has come effectively with that judgment through the Ten Commandments. Talking now and looking forward to the second coming of Christ, the Lord is coming. Uh, and the way that he's, uh, the, the tense that he uses there is, is very specific and it is an absolute, it is going to happen. All right, so the target here that we're talking about, it's these men, it's the men that are referred to in, in verse uh, 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares. Um, and it is very clear that it is ungodly men. Uh, it is used four times within this particular verse. Ungodly among them, ungodly deeds, ungodly committed, and ungodly sinners. So, sorry, that was the heavy part out of the way. So we'll get on to, uh, to, to what we're used to, which is sort of the breakdown of the verses themselves. But, uh, but Enoch, as I said, is, is, a, is a rather complex book and it was worthy of, of noting those differences in uh, quotation between the original text and what Jude is saying. It's taking it from a, a past tense to a very real present slash future tense in, in the coming judgment of the Lord. So... The word that we've got here in verse uh, 15, when we're talking about to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly. In, in our terminology, to convince all kind of sounds like you'll be sitting down with everyone like a father and convincing that these are the things you've done wrong and how you could have done it better. That's not actually its translation. The translation is to convict fully or to punish. Um, it, it is at this point that the, the punishment is coming through. And we are looking at works of ungodliness, deeds and words of ungodliness. Um, so when we're talking about, um, uh, because it's a bit of a word for when you, a mouthful when you read all the 15 together, but it effectively breaks down to uh, our actions and our words and what they mean in this world. And, and something that I think our, our church um, repeats often, which is, which is a comfort, um, uh, I need to sort of, I guess, contrast that with what Jude's talking about because it, it can sort of lead some people astray um, and, and, and has over, over the time. So uh, looking at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, um, we say, For grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. And we, we quote this one quite often from the pulpit, Not of any word works, yes, lest any man should boast. So we're talking about here, uh, grace and and salvation are obtained through the Lord only. And Jude recognises that right at the beginning of his epistle. 
the, our salvation is not based on any of our works, but then Jude continually goes on with the works that people are doing. And what needs to be emphasized here is that our deeds are a reflection of our salvation. It's not the reason for it, but it doesn't mean that our deeds are inconsequential. What we do in this life is important. And they're a reflection of our salvation, and, and that is something that we should be very aware of. That, that, you know, we know words hurt, we know that actions can hurt, um, and, and we know that people will rightly or wrongly judge us for the things that we've done. But if we've got this in mind as we move through our life, uh, that our words and our actions should be something that's honouring to God in whatever way we can do it, we will be living a better life. Uh, and I'll get to, to, to a reference that clearly articulates that for us. But just to make, make it clear, you know, we're talking about words and we're talking about deeds. Well, that's not part of my salvation, but it's absolutely a reflection of it. So I just wanted to contrast that with Ephesians and, and sort of make that clear. That it's not, Jude's not talking about, uh, you know, it's, it's the fact that they have works of ungodliness or words of ungodliness that are that, uh, why the Lord is going to execute judgment upon them. They've rejected Christ. He made that very clear at the beginning. Um, in verse 4, they deny our Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They've already denied it, but as a reflection of it and how we can understand and identify these individuals, it's through their works and it's through their words. So there's a quote uh, from Marcus Aurelius in his book Meditations that I've always been very fond of. Um, and it says, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically a, a quote that uh, he put together or a, or a meditation or a thought that he had um, of, of trying to lead a better life. And that was very much what Marcus Aurelius was into. He was a philosopher in his own right in addition to being the, the, the leader of Rome at that point in time. So he said, Consider if thou hast hitherto behaved in such behaved, sorry, I apologise, I'm reading terribly today. I'll start again. Consider if thou hast hitherto behaved to all in such a way that this may be said of thee. Never has wronged a man in deed or word. This is very much the opposite of what we're talking about here. And I always thought that was a phenomenal quote. And then the Lord led me to Colossians 3.17. And I'll read that out and, 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 and look up on the screen as I read this one here. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So it's, it's effectively the same quote, but giving all glory to God, which is what Jude's very much talking about here. I thought the first one was already a hard enough thing to achieve in life, to not have offended anybody in, in word or action. But Colossians is calling us not to offend the Lord Jesus in, law, in word or action, which is an insurmountable task, but for through his grace and through his salvation. So I, I think that is uh, very much a, a Colossians is a, very much a, a verse that is the opposite or the antithesis of what we're talking about here in, uh, in, in Jude 15. <clears throat> now this verse, verse 15, that actually ends the condemnation of the old ordained, which is referred to in, in verse 4 in Jude, where we're talking about... Um, uh, the, the condemnation of old ordained in verse 4. That is uh, effectively the historical elements, what has preceded, what has gone before Jude writing this letter. So from this point forward, we're very much talking about the current climate and the current situation that, uh, that Jude and the, the, the listeners or the readers of, of his epistle uh, are sitting in. That ends that and now going forward, he's talking specifically to them about the, the times that they've got and the times to come and what they can do. Uh, against it. So that, that effectively bookends what he's talking about in verse 4 at the end of verse 15 uh, and, then, and then we move forward. So now that we've gotten some of that heavy stuff out of the way, 
Um, I'll now go on to ancient Greek philosophy, which is really nice and, and simple. Um, I'll try and make this as, as uh, simple as I can. Um, philosophy is actually a, a bit of a, or was, was quite a, uh, a big part of my reading, especially when I hit university. Um, it, was, it was a bit of a hobby and something that I really wanted to sort of sink my teeth into, and I really did enjoy it, but it has been far surpassed by anything that I've gotten out of the Bible since uh, being saved. Um, and, and has sort of fallen by the wayside. So although I'll, I'll make some comparisons and, and pull out some philosophies uh, of old, um, I don't think it's all necessarily bad. Uh, there are some great things that you can get out of it, but there's nothing in, in comparison to what the Bible is there to tell us as far as uh, the way that we should be living our lives and what we can get out of this world. Um, so keep that in mind. This is just a bit of an education. The purpose of me reading this out is to really put you in the mindset of the times, so that when we come to looking at verse 16, which is specifically what Jude's calling out these individuals for, you can all be a bit more understanding of the mindset of the time and what people were dealing with, and specifically what Jude was having to deal with in writing this letter. So Greek philosophy started around 6th century. Um, The the term comes from uh, philosophia, uh, which is a love of wisdom. and again, without getting too complex, it's, it's really looking at the structure of reality, which is sometimes referred to as metaphysics, which is just trying to understand the world and everything around us, which I think ultimately is, is what most people are trying to do at any given point in time. Um, but again, through the Bible, we have much more of an understanding of that reality, how it's come to be, what our place is within it. Um, but philosophy was really looking at trying to reason your way to that point, as opposed to understanding it through the Lord's eyes and through his authority. So it was really uh, about finding truth in whatever form that might be um, and, and ultimately a flawed logic given that, uh, that we were doing, uh, the, these individuals and anybody following this is doing it out of their own head and their own heart. <clears throat> so specifically a group that was very influential in the, in the Hellenistic uh, areas that, that Jude was writing this in and to Um, were the sophists and I made reference to them back in the first lesson. Um, Now they took basically the love of component out of it and just took the sophist component of of the word, so the the sophia, meaning wisdom. This started about uh, another century after Greek philosophy started in general and they were purely uh, interested in the art of persuasion which is known as rhetoric. Um, They weren't focused on the truth, they just wanted to argue their conclusions were relevant. They, they always basically played the devil's advocate. It was, it was a game for them. It was enjoyable for them. And I'm sure we all know a million and one people that, that sit in that camp, probably myself included at one point in time. Um, <clears throat> they were also, the, the comment that I've got here is persuasion for hire or wisdom for a fee. These individuals were highly regarded in that society and they were usually invited into people's homes or invited into cities often paid large sums of money or, or, or put up in, in, in people's homes and fed and bathed, etc., etc., because people wanted to hear what they had to say. Um, at that time as well, as specifically at the time of Jude, maybe not so much at the, in the 5th century BC as we, as we approached uh, the life and, and times of Christ, you have the Roman Empire that sat over the top of it. Uh, they brought what you would call a, a level of, um, not sophistication, but, but a level of... Um, uh, what would we say? Sorry, I had a specific word and it's on another slide. My apologies. 
democracy, that's what I was looking for. Um, so they, they, there would be somewhat democratic elections, maybe not in relation to uh, Caesar himself, but in all of the towns and communities that surrounded it, they wanted to hire and elect local officials to keep law and order at that particular point in time. Um, and at that time, because there were elections, you were basically voted... It was a popularity contest. As it is today, nothing's changed. So these individuals would be hired to help people to speak eloquently, to, to show them how to make good arguments. They would get up in the public square and they would basically either, you know, announce their candidacy and the good things that they'd done while at the same time uh, ripping to shreds their opponent. These were the individuals that they hired. These were basically their, their, their political campaign spokesmen um, and they were hired for a fee. They might argue, in uh, argue from town to town. Um, one of the things that came out of this was, was this concept of relativism and relativists, that, although they were a subcomponent of this overall philosophy, they were a, a majority of the mindset. They did not believe that there was an objective truth and that it could be found and this is the antithesis of theology, which is really the study of God and his mindset. This is basically saying you can't identify a truth overall, so don't worry about it, which I feel is a, is a pretty nonsense philosophy to begin with. Um, it even undermines its own philosophy, which if you're trying to seek wisdom, um, there's no real point uh, to, to doing any of that. And that's really evident um, in some of the most notable um, sophist philosophies. So uh, Protagoras, not to be confused with Pythagoras, who was also a, um, a philosopher and mathematician, um, he is credited uh, as starting the philosophy of relativism, which is really a man-measure of doctrine. Um, and, and the best way I can sort of describe relativism is, is to say, if we were to come into this room, some of you would claim that it would be quite warm, some will be comfortable, some will be cold. Um, the, the sophists take that one step further to say, well, if, if you, your, your truth must be true, my truth must be true, we're never going to agree on this, so let's just call it all off. It's very hard to argue against that, and we've all come up against arguments like that, maybe not that specifically, but we've all had that argument with someone that's been in opposition to us, but only to be in opposition to us. There's nothing to that argument. So one of, the, uh, one of his greatest quotes, and, and again, I, I use greatest in quotations as I did with Notable up the top there, man is the measure of all things, of all things that are, that they are, of things that are not, they are not. That, that really comes down and encapsulates what I was talking about. If it's true to you, it's true to you, and no one can convince you otherwise, and so be it. And you hear that today. This is my truth. I'm speaking my truth. This is what it is. It's a justification of a particular position without having to justify that particular position. It's true to me. I don't need to debate and argue with you. Um, um, I'm just right because I'm right and it feels right to me. And we can apply that to the way that people interpret the Bible and the way that they accept or reject certain things. I don't like this because it doesn't resonate with me. I don't like that because it's uncomfortable. I don't want to follow that because I have other things I'd rather do. And we've seen time and time in all the examples that we've got from the, the rejection of Christ in the, will, uh, the rejection of the Lord in the wilderness by Israel through to Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., etc., all through the examples that we've, we've looked at so far, they are all a rejection of God's authority to follow something that means something to your truth, um, which, is, which is a flawed logic each and every time. Um, he's also he wrote another book uh, called On the Gods, and the big quote from that is, let us hold our discussion together in our own persons, making trial of the truth and of ourselves. Again, this concept of, I don't need to debate it with you, I'll debate it internally, and whatever conclusion I come to has to be the right one because it's correct to me. So we can compare that with what Jude talks about in, in verse 9 and 10, which is this concept of uh, moral relativism, 
which he's, he's basically these interlopers, these people that he's talking about, with the spiritual maturity and discernment that Michael shows over the body of, of Moses. Or when, when Satan comes to take the body of Moses, um, Michael is, is there as the archangel, and instead of him having a go at the devil, he says, the Lord rebuke thee. We've, we've covered that, and I won't go into any more detail, but it's a perfect example of somebody recognizing something out of themselves, the Lord being an authority, rather than I'll just speak my truth. I'll let you know what I feel. Um, it is a spiritual maturity versus a moral relativism. One of the other um, uh, philosophers, um, Gorgias, also known as the Nihilist, uh, which is a, is a wonderful name to, uh, to have associated with you, um, he introduced the concept of paradoxical thought and paradoxical expression. Again, another useless exercise in philosophy as, as far as I'm concerned, which is let's think of the most paradoxical thing that we can come up with and if we can determine that that is true or not true, uh, in, and of, uh, in and of amongst ourselves, it, it must be. Um, and his greatest quote is, self-contradictory not once but four times. So his greatest claim is nothing exists, and even if it does exist, so he's already, already contradicted himself with his first statement, which is nothing exists, followed by even if it does exist, nothing can be known about it, and even if something can be known about it, knowledge can't be communicated to others, and even if it can be communicated, it can't be understood. It's this... Co- yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had to read a lot of these to get the, 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 the nuggets out of it, but it was, uh, it was a slog. So effectively, um, uh, what he's saying is that, that and, it, and it's a concept that runs through a lot of the surface philosophies, even if I could tell you my truth, you wouldn't be able to understand it because your experience is completely different to mine. Um, uh, I can't tell you what hot is to me. It's not going to make sense to you. Your definition of hot will be different, etc., etc. It is a useless exercise in thought. Um, uh, the reason why, uh, and it's worth pointing out, the reason why there's a lot of question marks on the date is because none of these exist anymore. The references exist in other documentation um, and, and some biographers of, of philosophers of the time. Some of their quotes were put down. Um, but uh, Protagoras, uh, he had a, a one specific comment that I'll read out here. He said, Concerning the gods, I have no means of knowing whether they exist or not, nor of what sort they may be, because of the obscurity of the subject and the brevity of human life. So again, I'm not going to be bothered thinking about why we're all here. It's too difficult to think of, so I'm going to throw it out. So he, w- he actually took a very antagonistic uh, position against, against the gods, not just, not just uh, the... the the Hebrew uh, God, uh, but all of the other pantheon of gods that existed uh, in, in, in Greek culture at that time. Um, he was living uh, in Athens, so the Athenians basically booted him out, pulled all of his books together and burnt them in the marketplace. So the interesting thing is that for a majority of the Sophist philosophers, there's nothing that exists of their writings. Very, very little has survived uh, over the years, which is re-emphasised again by the comment that we looked at last week in Jude 1.12, which is the clouds without water. It's all talk. It's all vapour. There's nothing to it. It doesn't produce anything and it doesn't edify and it moves nothing forward. Um, so I'll quickly run through a couple of the others. Now, that's, that's a specific acknowledgement of the sophists, which were very much within the community at the time and very well respected. <clears throat> there were other philosophies at the time. I think it's worth looking at them just in, um, in, in, in very quick succession. But again, emerging from sort of the first, for, for, from the 4th century onwards, uh, we've got the cynics. Um, uh, the term uh, uh, cynic is actually dog-like and it was actually a derogatory term given to them um, because they believed, in addition to the goal of life is achieved um, through having a good spirit, they believed that you shouldn't own anything. There should be no personal possessions. You should be, uh, be, be, be living basically as a pauper and surviving off uh, of 
off others. Now, the most famous cynic, um, Diogenesis, I believe it's pronounced, um, he was famous not only for, for sort of spearheading this campaign amongst Greek philosophy, but actually lived in a ceramic wine jar on the streets of Athens. Now, it seems ridiculous, and I think the thought process is that it's a small jar. These were very big urns, like you would have uh, big wine barrels, etc. But he lived in that on the streets, and that was his... Yes? Very much so. He would have been talking to these individuals, and yes, no. The, this was this was alive. So although although the, the the chronology of this this is when they started, these are all very much alive at the time of, of of Christ. And and the reason why I wanted to put the dates in there is I don't, in my opinion, I don't feel that this is a coincidence that starting six centuries before the arrival of Christ, all of these philosophies have merged effectively in opposition. You don't have to worry about what God's telling you from the Old Testament. Christ's on his way. I think the opposition was there were some seeds planted and the devil needed to prepare his fields. And we've looked at, he, he, he sowed his tares into the fields in advance so that they would grow up at the time of Christ. And this was the opposition. And we still face this opposition. It might not have the same uh, terminology and it might not be, be given the same name, but it absolutely exists today. Yes? It speaks a great deal for the intellect and the insight of Brother Paul, Yes, very much so. And Jude as well. I mean, a lot of the New, uh, New Testament uh, writers were, you know, if you, if you break it down and have much more of an understanding, it's kind of why I wanted to go through this. This doesn't just apply to Jude, but having this mindset and an understanding of what this, what the mindset was of the time of the individuals in, in Greek culture, it, it very much allows you to look through that lens and, and what they were talking about in their epistles. We very much apply it to ourselves as we should be, but to also understand its context, I think, gives that additional layer and an understanding of, of, of the opposition that, that we are facing as saved individuals when we come to salvation. These are the philosophies we need to overcome. They sound great. The reason I've given the dot points here are that these are the good aspects, and I'll, I'll cover some of the negatives of, of what they talk about. But, um, um, but yes, yes, very much so. The, 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 the apostles, they were definitely inspired. Everyone in the Bible was obviously inspired, but but to oppose this was a huge task. Um, so we had the cynics, um, uh, and they basically, uh, they said that the only way to achieve that good spirit that they refer to um, is living according with nature, but in addition to that, you have to shun all laws, all customs, and all social conventions. So you, you're basically living on the street, be a pauper, um, which, again, you know, doesn't sound too appealing, but it's those individuals that want to live according to nature, um, it, it is an appealing prospect for some individuals, especially that want to want to leave the workforce. Um, but at the same token, here this this very much relies on the generosity and the work of others. Other people need to be pulling that weight for you. Uh, you know, if if you're living on the street and begging for someone to give you that money, they need to be doing something. Uh, we have the 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 Cyrenax. Uh, they believe that pleasure was the supreme good in life, uh, especially physical pleasure. So they were, these were the original hedonists. Um, they believe that no one can know certainty without any certainty. The only thing that they can know is their immediate sense and experiences. So very self-inwards looking, and these are all inwards looking. Um, they denied that anyone can have knowledge of the experience of anyone else. So again, this concept of I can't know your truth, only my own. So don't worry about it. Uh, Stoicism, uh, which has some good things in it um, uh, as, a, as, a philosophical, uh, as a philosophical statement, but there are other things that, that go along with it. There's always good and bad, as there is with everything. So it said virtue is the only good. Uh, and external things like health, wealth, pleasure uh, are not good, uh, not good or bad in and of themselves, but they'll impact your virtue. So just keep an eye on it. 
All right, you can have your wealth, you can have your health, you can have all of your pleasures, but just don't go overboard is kind of the, the concept, concept of stoicism. Um, as in being stoic, I will do what I need to in the face of, of anything that comes my way. Um, you need to practice certain virtues. And again, um, passions and judgments, they shouldn't be there. Um, but notions of good and evil uh, lie at the root of passion. So if you're actually excited by something, if you want to follow something good or bad, um, Again, keep an eye on it, just as long as it doesn't get out of hand is is the basic philosophy behind that. Um, We have Epicureanism, which is uh, third century. So again, the greatest good um, was to seek tranquility and freedom from fear and the absence of bodily pain. And you only achieve this by uh, having a a knowledge of the workings of the world and limiting your own desires. But uh, uh, Epicurus, who started this, he was basically recommended against any love uh, and he believed it best to avoid marriage altogether. Uh, he also sought to eliminate fear of the gods and of death. So he didn't want to think about that because they were the chief causes of stress in his life. So basically eliminating what's going to happen and any judgment associated with it. Don't worry about it. Um, and then you have the emergence of scepticism just before the arrival of Christ, uh, which is the, uh, basically the greatest good is an untroubled soul. Uh, and you'll get that by the, subs- the suspension of judgment and a mental rest owing um, uh, to which you cannot either deny or affirm anything. So again... Don't judge others for anything they're doing and be comfortable in what you're doing. It's impossible to know anything else. So again, it's not, it's not I guess, uh, specifically in relation to the book of Jude, but having that understanding as we move into the next, uh, next phase of, of the book of Jude is important. Uh, so thank you for, uh, for letting me get through all of that. So now I have, to have Christian philosophy. I put that in quotations because it's not really a philosophy and we're not, we're not looking or seeking wisdom here. We have a truth. It's a Christian truth that we have. Um, <clears throat> so again, Colossians is another reference for this. So Colossians 2.8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. This is a warning against the very philosophies that we just looked at. They might seem appealing on the surface, but they are in vain deceit. They, they appeal to us because they seem like an easy way out. I don't, need to worry. I don't have to stress about a coming judgment. I don't need to stress about what I say and what I do. And if I do something that offends someone else, well, it's just because their truth differs to mine. Colossians 2 is in direct opposition of that. And then we've got a verse that I've brought up many, many times before uh, from Proverbs, and this should be written on our hearts. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, and in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. This is what we should be following. If the Lord is within us, and we are truly saved, and we, we take ourselves out of the equation, lean not to thine own understanding, the complete opposite of every philosophy we've looked at, we acknowledge him and he will direct our paths. He will take us where we need to go. So all of the philosophies that we looked at before effectively fail because God's absent in all of them. It's only the self. They fail to, they fail to recognize his authority or in other words, as we see in verse 3, they fail to earnestly contend for the faith. And what does that result in? Ungodly deeds and ungodly words. Our behaviors are evident of us not following the Lord. So Jude here, he's not, following, he's not, he's not um, uh, focusing on doctrine here and the doctrine as a lot of the other epistles did because he's talking about false teachers. We're talking about individuals that are crept in unaware. He's not focusing on doctrine but on moral choices, right? Those choices are denying the word of God and his authority, and, and, uh, his authority over us. Um, as it says again in verse 4, they are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying our Lord God and our only Lord Jesus Christ. 
So our, our philosophy, as it were, or our truth, should be following the Lord and an understanding of what he has for us. <clears throat> so specifically Jude's audience, as we're talking sort of, and I, I put the approximate here, approximately 57 to 61 AD. Again, we're in a somewhat democratic society under Roman rule. Everyone of that time had, had heard or read, uh, I'll put both because uh, some people would have been illiterate at that stage, but there would have been churches, or not as we know them today, but gatherings where, where the Bible was shared. Um, this would have, the Old Testament would have been shared in Hebrew, either in the original language um, or in, in a Greek translation. It, they would have read and heard all the other non-canonical traditional uh, texts like we, we sort of spoke about in previous um, lessons, the Apocrypha, which is also known as the Deuterocanon, and the Pseudoepigrapha, Pseudoepigrapha, sorry, many large words in, in this study, um, which include the Book of Enoch and, and the Wisdom of Sirach, um, and the Testament of Moses, which we've looked at as well. So the New Testament canon hadn't been formalised yet. So we weren't in a, they weren't in a state at this stage to say, this is the New Testament, these are all the epistles. There were letters flying around all over the place, there were books, etc. The New Testament was not formed yet. And again, it's, 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 it's not as um, uh, understood. It wouldn't have been as understood in that time. There would have been a lot of uh, people that needed to, to read these and actually understand and absorb what it meant for them. And they would have heard or even participated in debates over which books should and shouldn't be included in the New Testament. That was happening at this point in time. <clears throat> and these texts would have been read and heard, not only in the Jewish, but also in the Christian communities alike. And just like it is today, there would have been arguments over it. There would have been treated with respect by some and disdain by others. So basically, given everything we know of the philosophy of the time, all the arguments against it were fruitless. So Jude doesn't bother arguing against it. It's an impenetrable argument. Because every argument, according to them, is irrelevant. You can't convince me of mine, and I can't convince you of yours, so we, we can't do that. So instead, Jews focuses on their output, their behaviours. They bear no fruit, and they don't move the faith forward. That's, that was his argument, and that's his, been his argument the entire way through here. They have achieved nothing, as he said in, in all of the, 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 the lyrical um, um, comments that we had in verse 12 to 13. Um, they were waterless clouds, carried about by winds, Trees, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, waving, uh, raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame and wandering stars. And we went through uh, each one of those descriptors and how that applied to these individuals. But Jude's audience would have been very aware at that point, again coming into to Enoch and then looking at specifically what's happening in verse 16. These murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, with their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's persons in aberration because of advantage. These were the people of the day, and it would have been very obvious, and hopefully looking through all the examples we did in, in, in the philosophers and the philosophical uh, studies of the time, that that's much more clear to us now looking at this. They are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. It's a self-love, it's a self-understanding, it's a self-truth. In their mouths having great swelling words, and having men's persons in aberration because of advantage. And I'll quickly break that down and, and, and we'll end it here. Um, so hopefully we're actually um, getting through it on time, which is lovely. So I'll break down the term uh, grumblers. So I've got here in Greek to murmur, and there is an equivalent in the Hebrew um, that I've, I've, I've listed out here. And there are four specific examples, and I won't read them out uh, individually, but you can do it in your own time um, if you so wish. This concept of murmur, when we're talking in the Old Testament here, so it's this Hebrew term that we're using, there are four specific examples that I wanted to call out of this murmuring. We have two from Exodus, and this is when the bitter waters were made sweet, 
Again, everyone was murmuring, we have nothing to drink and the water we do have is bitter. God provided a way out of that. Uh, In Exodus 17, we've got no water to drink. They complain to Moses, God provides a way out of it. In Numbers 14, we have uh, the murmurs against uh, Moses and Aaron and we looked at that specifically in the examples that Jude called out. Um, uh, Looking at that in uh, verse 11. Uh, Sorry, my apologies, verse uh, 5. Um, and then we've got Israel murmuring against God and his punishment, effectively, that everybody over the age of 20 will drop in the desert. Uh, these examples, and, and as I did last week where I was sort of paraphrasing um, um, the terminology, it's in, uh, underlined here, just to let you know that's my interpretation of this. Um, again, test it with your scripture, but this is focusing on your difficulties instead of deliverance. And it's, and it's focused on many times here that this concept of grumbling, I'd rather focus on what's happening to me and the difficulties in my life rather than the salvation I've got in Christ and what I can do for others. The term complainers, finding fault and voicing criticism. Did God really mean that? The Bible's full of contradictions. The Old Testament doesn't really apply today as it does now. We've all heard those arguments. These are, these are the complainers, the grumblers. That's what they're doing. You will know them by their works. They are <coughs> waterless clouds. They're not producing anything. So they're focusing on their difficulties. They're finding faults and voicing criticisms. <coughs> walking after their own lusts. Now this term walking which is to go, is exactly the same word that Jude uses in verse 11 where he says they've gone in the way of Cain. They've followed after him. They followed what he was doing. Cain built a city that was known for its sin. People joined that city and they, they uh, basically identified themselves with Cain. They followed after him. Um, it was something that was exciting to them. It's gone in the way or they've followed. They're walking. They're walking after their own lust. They're pursuing that. They're not pursuing the Lord. And lusts here is a longing. It doesn't necessarily need to be something that is, is sexual in nature, as, as that term has come to be, but it is a passion that's internal to you, and it is, it is a longing for that. And again, it's a longing outside of the Lord. And the example that, uh, that I wanted to call up here is uh, in the parable of the sower again, uh, Mark 4.19. We've got, and because this is the Lord using that term lusts here. And the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word. So those lusts choke the word and it become unfruitful. So when you're introducing lusts into or your personal beliefs into, into this following of, of, of Christ, they don't go hand in hand. They're choking the word and they become unfruitful at that point. So they're pursuing personal needs and feeding themselves. And again, that, that concept of feeding themselves and, and following after their own lusts is repeated again in, in 1 Jude verse 12. So he's, he's even sort of semi-quoting himself at this point. And the very last ones, their mouth speaketh great swelling words. So the mouth here, the way that it's used, he's employing the singular to imply the plural. Uh, and I'll break that down. So he says, their mouth speaketh. That's very much an individual issue. Their mouth, as opposed to their mouths. And it's not to suggest that it's one person talking, but that it's a unified voice. If there are more than one individual in there, they are pulling it apart in the same way. It is a unified voice. It is their mouth instead of their mouths. That is expressing contempt and pride and it is the antithesis of humility that uh, the Lord refers to in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. These people aren't meek. They're, they're, they're boasting. They are prideful um, and that is the opposite of, of what God wants them to be. So uh, again, looking at that, that summary that we've got in 16, they focus on their difficulties instead of deliverance. They find fault and voice criticisms. 
They, pers uh, they pursue personal needs and feed themselves and they express contempt and pride. I'll do a summary at the very end of, of, of everything that Jude has in the very last lesson so that we can really have a, almost a cheat sheet of what we should be looking for in these individuals that have, that have come before. Um, and then the last bit here. Sorry, I know we've gone over time. Um, having men's person in aberration because of advantage. These persons, that's a visage. It's an external representation. The actual root word for this is like an actor's mask. So they're, they're, they're following individuals because of the way they look, the way that they, they, they stand out in a crowd. And the advantage here is a benefit or a profit. So these, these interlopers, these individuals that have uh, come into the church, they're following other individuals, not because of what they're saying, not because of what they're doing, but because of what they look like, what their, their, their persona is expressing. <clears throat> and they're doing it for benefit or profit. So the questions that come to mind, uh, sorry, so that's showing partiality to people for the sake of gain. Um, so, sorry, I'll end with this. So the questions, I guess, in everyone's mind are what lusts, what words, and what advantage? And Jude's silent on it for a very good reason. It's absolutely irrelevant. The specifics of their sin are not important. The behaviour themselves should be our focus. And that's why the focus of, of, of what I've tried to look at has been the behaviours of these individuals. So, um, so that's it. Again, we've gotten through these three verses in the, in the prophecies, um, looking at uh, Enoch's prophecy. There's an ancient warning and then the current situation in, in Jude 1.3 that he's referring to, which is the very reason for his letter. And that, uh, that ends that. So thank you very much. Apologies for going over time. And, uh, and I'll just wrap up with a quick prayer and we'll, we'll get into the service. Thank you, Lord, again, for, uh, for allowing us to spend time in your book. Um, thank you. There was a, a lot of content to get through and I, I hope that uh, even if some small part resonates with, um, with anyone here, that, uh, that your, work, your work will have been done. Uh, please help us to etch your word on our hearts as we, as we go out today. Um, please uh, bless the service as it comes up. Um, again, uh, let, us, let us not be too weary after going through all of that to, uh, to, um, uh, to not hear your word during the service. Please uh, give us that resilience to, uh, to continue to absorb and, uh, and allow us to make application for all of it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.